exciting new podcast. Welcome to Overlooked and Underreported, a podcast that seeks to shed light on topics that are at the peripherals of the political scene and explain them in easily understandable, hopefully short segments. Coming up, Alex Morishana will parse through the data and explain to us why something called occupational licensing reform should be addressed on a national level. But before that, my name is Shersha Khan, and just for a short introduction, I love campaigns. I love the overworked reporters rushing from city to hamlet to small town, desperate to scoop the next Watergate, though very much willing to settle for an off-the-cuff comment made on a hot mic. I love the dynamism and energy of the hungry candidates who seek to sell their vision for America in a neatly packaged 30-second stump that has to be both palatably familiar and radically different. But most of all, I love seeing droves of passionate everyday people who, for a brief moment, get really excited about politics, who are unencumbered by apathy and cynicism and drink the Kool-Aid wholeheartedly of whatever candidate they think is best for the nation. But see, that's on the national level. There is never the same excitement about a local alderman or city mayor. In a Hill article from 2016, Becky Kipp retakes the old Tip O'Neill adage of all politics are local to argue that voting for mayor is more important than voting for president because of the effect that mayors have in implementing policy, because of how they are more directly beholden to the people, and mostly because of how few people pay attention to local politics, electing a mayor gives you more say over what your everyday looks like than electing any national figure. Which is why, on this inaugural episode, we begin today in our own backyard. On Tuesday, November 7th, citizens of Somerville will vote for mayor in the first competitive race since 2007. Here's what you need to know. The incumbent is one Joseph Curtitoni, he has been the mayor since 2004 and faced a Somerville radically different than today's city. In his own words, Somerville was facing a fiscal crisis, rising violence, and an uncertain future. To his supporters, Curtitoni's leadership is what led the city through the recession and into a period of city growth and prosperity. His campaign is very much one that argues on building on the prosperity and work already done, or, as he put it during the mayoral debate, We've been named the healthiest city, the best-run city, the greenest city, the most likable, walkable, an all-American city, and we're just getting started. It has been my honor of a lifetime to be part of all that, and I can't wait to see what comes next, and I ask you for your vote. His opposition, however, disagrees. Running on a Sanders-like campaign based on the idea that Curtitoni has perpetuated a war on workers, Peyton Corbett is attempting to unseat a mayor who has run unopposed in the past 10 years. Corbett was a union worker in Teamsters 122 and has been active in advancing the union causes for about a decade. From his campaign video, his main concern is that, quote, Somerville will become a city of rich people and poor people, where the rich far outnumber everyone else, end quote. He's campaigned on more affordable housing, slashing overspending, and doing away with cronyism. Let's talk about the main issues of the candidates. Corbett's main criticism of Curtitoni is that he's in the pocket of big business developers and needs to demand more in community benefits from large organizations and what he calls, quote, so-called non-profits like Tufts University, end quote. He argues that the mayor is corrupt as his salary has been raised $100,000 since he took office in 2004. Finally, he argues the mayor has not done enough for local people, being, quote, too focused on national politics and, quote, posting on social media daily about the Trump administration, end quote, rather than addressing Somerville's concerns. Curtitoni's rebuke to this has been that he does not decide what his salary is. The municipal board does. He's also argued that he has done more for the city in regards to leading it through a fiscal crisis, making a more transparent government, and depressing crime rates. His main attack, however, has been a values one. Earlier this year, old Corbett's social media postings resurfaced where he had made 
what are, in his own admission, racist and sexist comments. He has since apologized, but many of his supporters, including the influential activist Sanders supporting group Our Revolution of Somerville, which bolstered his campaign initially, pulled their support. The candidates clash on this issue during the Merrill debate, which we have a clip of right now. I believe in giving people second chances, even you for the horrific things you've said. I believe in that forgiveness. But when someone in today's day and age continues to parrot the lies and falsehoods and attacks the most vulnerable members of our population and you won't say no to them, that's troubling. That's not what leadership is. Go ahead. If you're ready to, if you're ready to forgive me for things that have been said almost a decade ago, then why do you keep bringing them up? Because is it because that's all you let have? Let him finish. No. Is it because that's all you have? Because you can't stand on affordability. You can't stand on the lack of good local jobs. You can't even stand up to the cronyism and corruption that happens in your city hall. Uh, Go ahead. This is not a distraction to allude or insinuate that asking you to clarify what you said or to reject his endorsement is a distraction belies every value of this community, a community that welcomes everyone, no matter where they're from, no matter who they are and what they believe in. But those are the issues the candidates focused on. Alex Morishano and I caught up with two undecided voters to ask their thoughts on the elections. When asked about what the main issue of this election cycle would be, the people we interview, interestingly enough, responded differently than either candidate. So I think the main issue right now is infrastructure, uh, housing, the, the cost of housing is out of control, really but you gotta fix, you gotta fix infrastructure, you gotta fix your bridges, you gotta fix everybody, you know, and don't play politics, take care of your constituents. My dad was mayor, he was a congressman, and that, that's the advice he gave to another mayor. Do not play politics, take care of your constituents. That's all. We then asked them on whether or not they believe there was too much of a focus on national politics. Take care. I mean, he you can know. have a personal opinion on Trump, but, yeah. but I mean, to dwell on it, like yeah, no, my you, got, said, you, you gotta you gotta take care of your constituents. You know, take care of your constituents, and and also um, make it whoever's mayor, make it a practice at random. Go and knock on people's doors. Uh, get a database of, of, of your constituents. Who are the elderly? What age? What kind of conditions? Share that with first responders and, and make random calls to your constituents. Knock on the door and say, hey, you know, put that human touch. The reason this story isn't at the forefront of people's minds is obvious. In local races, turnout tends to average fairly low, and most people feel as though their local politicians, perhaps because of how less visible they are, don't do much. There's no dramatic upheaval or House of Cards as power play in budget meetings and infrastructure talk. Yet to the individual, and especially to the people we interviewed, there is nothing more important than a local mayor. I'll let our anonymous interviewee speak for himself. Democracy needs to be disrupted. We need to be empowered, you know? Um, special groups, when you pass things really quick, it only benefits the special groups and the very powerful. We need to decimate information to the masses and get more people involved. You know, especially the young people, get them involved. In the preliminary round, which was held on September 19th, Curtitoni received 58.16% of the vote, with Corbett taking 35.06%. Corbett has quite a bit of ground to make up and is relying on the fact that he's a fresh face and claims of corruption in the Curtitoni government. But both sides and the people we interviewed are looking forward to the election and are especially looking forward to a hopefully high turnout. The vote will take place Tuesday, November 7th, and the candidates are optimistic all around about the results. I'm going to kick it over to Alex Morishanu to talk about occupational licensing reform. Thank you. Before we enter the next part of the show, we'd like to thank our sponsor. This show is brought to you by Blue Apron. So Blue Apron is 
Oh, oh wait, never mind. Uh, we're not actually sponsored by Blue Apron here. Anyways, I'm Alex Morishano, and I've come to inform you all on a topic which gets little attention, but has a significant impact on the lives of people and could be a good place for bipartisan interest. This subject is occupational licensing reform. According to the Reason magazine and the Brookings Institution, one quarter of all jobs in the United States require a government-issued license. Now, for some jobs, like, say, doctors, requiring licenses makes sense. But on its face, I think everyone can agree that one-fourth of jobs requiring licenses sounds off. And indeed it is. But why don't people give it any attention? It is a problem that has unfortunately slid under the radar in the national conversation for understandable reasons. It's not a flashy topic when compared with nuclear war with North Korea or Russians influencing the election. When compared to those topics of conversation, occupational licensing reform is positively soporific. However, it has a serious impact on both the economy and people's lives, especially on the poor. Based on analysis from Morris Kleiner and Alan Kruger, working at the National Bureau of Economic Research, occupational licensing both stymies economic growth and exacerbates income inequality. On the economic growth front, occupational licensing laws have a net cost of $40 billion annually to GDP. For some context, that's roughly equivalent to the GDP of Estonia. Meanwhile, current license holders, that is, people who are already in the middle or upper middle class, experience a 15% increase in their wages, while impoverished people, excluded by the complex and expensive licensing processes, experience higher levels of unemployment. So why do we have these occupational license requirements anyways? Presuming the political juxtaposition is Republicans support free market policies and economic growth, and Democrats support policies that reduce income inequality and help the poor, how did we get these licensing requirements? The justification for licensing is usually public interest or public safety, which abstractly fall in the government's purview, but are also used as reasons to pursue all forms of totalitarian tomfoolery. While there's clearly a public safety case for licensing doctors, is there one for manicurists? Although it varies state to state, it can take up to 600 hours to get a license to paint nails. Additionally, these licenses can cost up to $1,000 to obtain. So if they're bad for the poor and they slow down the economy, why do they exist? Well, there are special interests that do benefit from them. Namely, established players in these industries who do see a 15% increase in wages even as the net economic result is negative. Occupational licensing laws are a good example of Henry Hazlitt's rule of economic analysis. What matters is not the effect of policy on one particular group, but its effect on all groups. So though occupational licensing does benefit the in-group, its net effect is detrimental and the people who bear the burden are the poor. Even ideologically opposed groups should support occupational licensing reform. Conservatives and libertarians should dislike occupational licensing because A, it's anti-freedom. If something requires a license, it means that one is not free to do it without permission. And B, it's government regulation. It's unnecessary red tape that hurts small businesses most of all and unnecessarily impedes voluntary consensual commerce. Liber liberals or progressives should see that occupational licensing hurts the poor. People without economic flexibility cannot afford to take the time to take classes for and pass an excessively complex and expensive licensing process, effectively shutting them out of the labor market. And it's cronyism. Occupational licensing measures are supported by established players in whatever industry they affect as big companies seek to keep competition out. So what to do now? Now, occupational licensing is largely a state issue, but there have been some small incremental measures proposed in Congress. 
Here I'm going to be drawing liberally from a piece from Shoshana Weissman at National Review. Uh, for example, the New Hope Act, quality Star Wars reference from Representative Tim Wahlberg of Michigan, would allow state governments to use federal funding for workforce training programs to research and cut down on licensing requirements. Uh, the Allow Act, proposed, proposed by Senators Mike Lee and Ben Sass, would use the District of Columbia as a guinea pig for rolling back occupational licensing for every job except ones directly involved in public health and safety. Additionally, the government could use antitrust laws against the state licensing boards. They manufacture scarcity by controlling the labor supply in particular industries. The federal government has the ability to rein them in. Lastly, the federal government could roll back occupational licensing laws that apply to the federal workforce. So even though occupational licensing is primarily an issue controlled by the states, there's still plenty the federal government can do to release some of the burden of occupational licensing rules that hurt the poor and stagnate the economy. Now that's our show, folks. Well, I'm Alex Morishano. You can find me writing roughly bi-weekly columns on LoanConservative.com. Uh, and you can find us both, along with some other folks, on the Tufts Podcast Network. Thanks, thank you for listening. Hope you learned a little. And be sure to tune in next time. Stay plastered, Tufts. <laughs>